Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, good night, lovely listeners, and welcome to The Dreaded Lurgy with Laura van Lillyfeld and Kylie van Sale. Laura, I have news. <gasps> Kylie, tell me your news immediately. I am slightly reluctant, actually, now that I've said that, to actually put this out on the interwebs, but I officially have officially been awarded my PhD. <gasps> I, have a, I have a certificate and everything now. Well, it's an, e- it's an e-copy, but it counts. It's official. Is um Dr. Van Sale? Dr. Van Sale. Yes, but not the helpful. But not the helpful kind. Just the other sort. Uh, I still want to say paging Dr. Van Sale a lot. Might do it. I just don't think that's helpful. I mean, historians very seldom need to be paged. Nothing is relevant. <laughs> Ever. I dread to think of a situation in which you would have to page a historian. I can't, I can't, I can't imagine the chaos that would have to be raging. For that to become necessary. <laughs> well, I will be sure to use it in some way, shape, or form this episode. Paging Dr. Van Sale. Oh, no, please. <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> well, congratulations from me and the dreaded Lurgy listeners. A warm, well done, Dr. Van Sale. I feel like somebody should wave a small pom-pom at the stage, but we'll just take that as read, shall we? I also need to apologize for delaying the production of this episode for so long. Um, I have been having one mishap after another. I've had a funky eye, which required an eye patch. I have had a septic hand, which required, you know, which prevented me from typing. I've had weird sequence of headaches and I've just been busy doing work. So I'm so sorry. This should have come out a couple of weeks ago. But here we are. This is the beauty of. of being our own bosses. Uh, we get to decide. So life happens, and life is happening to Kylie. A little bit too much life is happening to Kylie. Kylie would like it if a little bit less life would happen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have so much to do. I just want to catch up. I so just want to catch up on the things I have to do. Um, I feel like that's asking for trouble. Probably. Do you know what is trouble, though? For sure is trouble. Guaranteed trouble. What? River blindness. Oh yeah, oh, that yeah, one hundred percent gonna ruin your day. That shit. I am. I presume. so braced for the information you are about to share. I've taken a preemptive mint to quell any nausea in response to the information with which you are about to delight us. I don't know if delight is the word for what I'm about to tell you, and I think that the mint was a good idea. And in fact, dear listeners, if you are eating, maybe put that down because you are not going to feel like your meal once I get into what we're talking about today, which is river blindness, a.k.a. onchocerciasis, which is nobody's idea of a fun way to spend a Sunday afternoon because it is a filarial infection caused by parasitic worms and nothing good ever starts with a parasitic worm of any description. Said worm is onchocerca volvulus, which gets into the skin and the eyes, which is spread by the bite of simulium blackflies, specifically the very aptly named simulium damnosum, <laughs> possibly because it's latin and i cannot be asked to pronounce latin correctly it is a dead language god damn it why are we clinging to it so badly uh these flies are little bastards laura you, you appear to be enacting the dying swan already i i'm still not over worms parasitic worm as a phrase is very troubling to my soul so <laughs> have you been <laughs> <laughs> buckle up it's gonna be a wild ride 
Okay, so these simulium flies are found actually um, quite a lot of places, but specifically the ones that we're talking about are found mostly in Africa. And I believe also parts of um, South Central and South America, as well as the Yemen. I feel very bad for the Yemen, and like the everything Yemen, just happens to Yemen. They are on the struggle bus in a very real way, in like a facing a gi- ginormous humanitarian crisis that is decimating human life. I mean, it is wild. If, if civil war and famine weren't bad enough, they also have river blindness. It's just, it's just a really horrible situation okay but these flies so they are not aquatic but they like to live near rivers and they lay their eggs um on vegetation uh near fast flowing water um usually below 1400 meters in elevation um and they tend not to stray very far from their river you know their birthplaces but they can actually be carried miles and miles and miles by wind um one was found something like 400 kilometers from its uh nearest river I imagine it was a fairly unhappy fly by then because they're quite prone to desiccation, which is to say that they actually need a slightly damp environment in order to survive. Um, they don't like the heat because they dry out pretty easily. And so they tend to be most active in early mornings and late afternoons, which is a bit of a bugger because that's the time that farmers are also the most active because it's just too hot to work in the middle of the day in um, much of Central and West Africa. So both the flies and the farmers on which they dine um, – are most active at dusk and dawn, and they tend to hang out, both of them, in grasslands and fields, uh, which are quite sheltered environments if you are a fly, and the source of your livelihood and your food if you are a farmer. And so people get bitten quite a bit, um, because these flies live on blood. But the thing is, so one fly bite isn't going to give you the infection. You need quite a few bites. You need to get like chronically bitten by these little buggers. But once you have it like buckle up, it's it's it is a rough ride and you will have it for a very long time unless you are quite lucky and the worm life cycle uh is is quite upsetting um this is where put down the sandwich step away from the pizza forget about the noodles in fact in fact if you're eating noodles i I don't know if you want to listen to the rest of this episode maybe come back when you are not eating noodles because one one food stuff that does not go well with parasitic worms is a is a noodle um so your average female black fly bites an infected person and ingests in that person's blood worm larvae and these larvae mature through several stages inside the fly Pause. before passing back. Pause, Kylie. So there are... Give me that one more time. The worm larvae are in my blood. There are worm larvae in my blood. Well, I mean, not to start with. You have to get bitten by a fly first. Yes, but, okay, so I've been bitten by the fly. So it's intent, like for all intents and purposes, tiny, tiny baby wormies are in my blood. Yes. Oh! <sighs> Okay, well, if that's going to be a problem, I don't know if we need, I, I don't know, maybe we should just stop this right now and come back and do something less gross, like, <laughs> because uh, if little baby worms in your bladders are going to upset you, I, this is not going to get better. Okay, I'm going to put on my big girl pants and I'm going to deal with it. Okay, so I'm I'm on board. There are worms in my blood. Huh. Yes. Okay, now the worms have gone, because the fly has bitten you and sucked out some of your blood, the worms have gone into the fly. Well, they're not actually adult worms yet. They're still larvae, microfilaria. Right, and um, they mature through several stages in the fly. They they mature in the fly's back muscles, and they move back into its stomach, and they move into its saliva eventually, and then they pass back into the next person the fly bites. There's no nice way to say it. They migrate into your blood, and then as they mature, they migrate from the blood into the subcutaneous tissue, and they grow to adulthood. So you basically have teenage and grown-up worms in your subcutaneous, so your skin, basically. 
here's the thing. <gasps> the adult worms. I'm so. I am so sorry. I'm. I'm so. If you could see Laura's face, um, <laughs> the adult worms mate in the skin. Oh, <gasps> Kylie! Kylie! And but he's hey, I did not invent these worms are not my fault. I was not involved in the evolution of these worms. I don't don't shout at me because it's gross. You chose this topic. And they produce hundreds. I don't know. Hundreds of larvae per day. And these larvae move into the skin during the day, and so they are more readily available to the flies, which as I've just explained, are the most active sort of during sort of late and early daylight. So um let's talk about how long these worms live for. I'm, they're they're having sex. Would you like in to get? <laughs> they are. They are indeed. Oh, okay, I'm Christy ready. Bob I'm ready. Pretzel. Yes. Whew. Yes. Just take it. Just take a. Just take a, a ballpark of how long these worms live for. It's a worm. It can't live long, like a year. No, dragon higher. Five years. No. Kylie, oh. I don't feel good about the direction this conversation is going. Um. Nine years. Eh, closer. This is truly profoundly repulsive. That is a lot of sex they're having in my skin for a, more than a decade, apparently. Yeah, it would be usually between 10 and 15 years. Oh my god! If left, if left, un, if left untreated. Okay, so, um, so they live for about 15 years and they produce per day between 800 and 1,500 larvae. So let's just lowball that. Let's assume it's 1,000 larvae a day. So 15 times 365, 5,475 days. So times that by 1,000 larvae a day. So you get 5,475,000 larvae. Thank you, calculator soup, for the function that you have of putting numbers into words because I would not have been able to translate that number myself. Per adult worm, per lifetime. So that's actually roughly equivalent to the population of Johannesburg, Barcelona, Fukuoka, St. Petersburg, or Qingdao. And that's, um, you almost certainly have, you definitely have more than one worm. Oh, there's like, there are colonies of worms having sex in my skin and they're just making babies. Well, not your skin in particular, but I mean, not your skin in particular. You yourself may relax, but there it's are 15.5 but... million other people who probably should be worried. Oh, Lord in heaven. That was a very upsetting life cycle. And I do not feel good about anything that just happened. <laughs> That was intense. That was a wild. Okay, what ride. I want to know is here, here's the thing. What I want to know is how did we know? Like how how do we know that this is happening? Because like who found who found out about this? Oh well, I can answer that question because it has nothing to do with worms having sex and skin. Because that's anything on that topic is out of my league. But that'll be in the back of your mind forever now. Oh, oh God, it's a. It's a powerful visual. It's a powerful visual. Uh, river blindness obviously has been around for centuries because evolution did not happen overnight. These little blighters have been there. But it was first introduced to Western science in 1874 when John O'Neill, a British naval surgeon based in what is today Ghana, was, and here's the quote, buckle up, intrigued. Mm. By an interesting and intractable skin condition. It was known locally as Krakra or Krawcraw. That sounds painful already. I know, it's a, it's a good name. Better than river blindness, right? That River blindness sounds like it might not actually be that gross. Uh, river blindness sounds okay. 
Yeah, in comparison to Crawl Crawl does not. Crawl Crawl sounds like it's going to ulcerate at least. Jeez Louise. Okay, well, Kylie, I'm scared to ask this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What are the symptoms of this disease? Set phases to stun. Okay, so it starts off with a little bit of itching and then quite a lot of itching and then really quite severe itching. And like to to the point is some people scratch so much that they get scars or secondary infections, which you will get if you're scratching a lot. Eventually you will scrape through your skin. And then so it ranges at that, the itchy bit ranges from small little bumps on the skin um, to skin that is so badly affected that it starts atrophying. It gets thin, it begins to sag. Um and it's, it, in some cases, it's it gets um, depigmented, so you get like paler patches on the skin. Um, also, you get the subcutaneous bump or a knob, I guess, where the worms, adult worms, accumulate. I I, just, I don't want to say the words worm orgy, but that's what we're all thinking. Um, <laughs> I can't believe I have uttered that. Um, and then uh, to the famous symptom, we, it's not a phrase I feel like we need to, we just move swiftly onwards, shall we? And into eyesight loss, which is the, obviously the famous symptom, hence the name river blindness. Um, the larvae get into the eye and they cause damage to various parts of the eye, most commonly the cornea. Um, it causes keratitis, which is basically an inflamed cornea. And I have had recently an inflamed cornea. I got a piece of varnish, dried varnish in my eye a couple of weeks ago, and I have seldom been more miserable. Um, let me tell you, it ruins your entire day. It's itchy, dry, scratchy, burny eye. Um, and it starts, uh, if, if that continues chronically, you get a, um, you get eyesight damage. It's, it's blurred vision, which eventually becomes very opaque and eventually goes dark. Um, and, uh, it's actually irreversible once it gets to that stage. So something like 800,000 people a year lose significant eyesight, um, to river blindness. And even if you get treated, like I said, can't reverse it. Um, something like 10% of um, villages in Savannah villages in West Africa are estimated to have suffered some, not complete, but partial at least, eyesight loss from uh, Oncocosis. Let me just see if I can pronounce this correctly. Oncocosis. Um, so you're thin because you're miserable, you're itchy, which is making you miserable, and you are blind or partially blind. And it's actually, although this this is actually not fatal, um, river blindness itself will not kill you no matter how long you have it for but it will definitely definitely make you an unhappy and like like unproductive person because you are just too physically miserable to do very much except exist in itchy dark misery it is we're, we're laughing but it's actually a really terrible terrible blight um the amount of sort of product productivity and like joy of life that you lose with river blindness is is considerable let's just sit with that for a moment let's just We've survived the wildness of the worm orgies, but you're so right. Like, these are human lives that we're talking about. It's a neglected tropical disease. It's not very, very, it's not very uh, well studied. It's not all that well understood. It's affecting people that, let's be realistic, most of the world has forgotten about. Talking about rural African villages, they're not getting a whole lot of press. Um, ever really unless it's a genocide, in which case everyone clutches their pearls and it's oh, no, terrible. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever does anything. Um, <laughs> It is it is a terrible, terrible affliction. So how do people know that they have it? Like at what point, like how does diagnosis or something like this work? You can be diagnosed off the symptoms, I imagine. But one of the more scientific ways it's um, diagnosed is you can have a blood test, which is kind of like the fancy version. If you, for example, were to go on holiday to West Africa and catch it there and go home and start experiencing symptoms, you would probably be diagnosed by a blood test. 
otherwise, um, you are diagnosed by they take a bit of a skin biopsy. Mm-hmm. And they plop that into n- normal saline, and they watch the worms come out. They're like, okay, there we go, that that worked. You have, look, it's okay. Look, it's gross. It's very simple. Saline is very easily available. You can make sal- you can make sal- saline, saline. You can make it up. You get a little snip, a little snip test of the skin, drop that in. Otherwise, they um, use a thing called the Mazzotti reaction to uh, diagnose it, which is based on a drug called diethylcarbamazine, um, which is an antiparasitic. Um, it has spectacular side effects. So although you can use it for treatment, they don't use it for treatment. They just use it for diagnosis. And they do the little patch test, which means they put a bit on a on a membrane, which they then apply to your skin. And um, because the, the drug itself causes, if you have river blindness, if you have the infested, you know, the filarial infection, it causes fever, itching, swollen lymph nodes, increased heart rate, joint pain, swelling. Well, as the worms die, they poison you. So what they do for the diagnostic version of this is they put a tiny amount of the drug, DEC, onto a patch, put that in your skin. And if you itch, and swell up in that area, you probably have, um, you know, the disease. It, it kills worms that are local. Um, uh, and there is another one, but I can't remember what it is. I think it's a blood test of some sort. It's not as commonly used as these first two. That is how they diagnose it. That is a kind of genius, intuitive way to to diagnose, to use a drug that doesn't work particularly well because it causes a tremendous amount of harm. And then to instead use yeah. it, the harmful side effects as a, a diagnostic tool. It is quite clever. Um, I'm glad. I'm glad somebody thought of that actually, because um, it's it's probably a lot better to find out you have it under a very controlled amount of DEC, because DEC is also used for other things. Um, oh. You don't want to accidentally. You don't because it can actually because the side effects are so bad, they can actually make your um, damage worse. You'll be cured, but you'll actually end up blinder or you know more with more skin damage. Yeah, that's um, not a treatment that's a desired outcome. That is happy to recommend. No, so no I, nobody wants that. I should have said earlier, much earlier, to like put a pin in you know our favorite one of our favorite podcasts to copy their phrase, to put a pin in the distribution of this disease, because I have a yes. story about the distribution of the disease. I know nothing about this. Enlighten me. It is generally accepted that river blindness was introduced to other parts of the world through. I want you to take a guess. Fruit export. Oh, that's a good one. Um, Export, certainly. (laughs) It's a good guess. You get points for guessing. But through the export of, in fact, a more brutal trade, people in the form of the slave trade. Oh, Christ. Okay, that's I should have known. So there are two pieces of evidence to support this. First... There is the mass movement of people from areas in which river blindness is endemic to areas in which river blindness is now endemic. So if you look at the pattern of people moving from West Africa through to Latin America, from West Africa through to Yemen, those uh, patterns, I'm not sure what the right word is, distribution patterns, it feels like it needs a stats term here, which is not my area. Neither one of mine, no. But anyway, so these two patterns match. But then they have a second, more convincing piece of evidence. So they've looked at the worms themselves. And the worms themselves in Latin America, both morphologically and genetically, are very similar to those found in West Africa. Okay. Uh, in- incidentally, the same type of worm is found in Yemen. So match morphologically to the West African worms. 
How did it get to Yemen? Slave trade. Really? Slave trade to Yemen? Oh, yes. Sorry, of course. Yeah, the East Coast slave trade. My bad. So I'm, a I'm with you now. wild, wild ride. In Yemen, it is known as Sauder and affects mainly the legs. Yemen doesn't have any rivers, though. What it does have is those, um, like, drainage basins. They call them wadis. I think that's a, you find the wadi throughout um, North Africa as well. It's a general general term for, like, a gully with a stream, right? Yeah. So there's, like there's no proper river. We would call it a donga. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We would call it a dongo. Now, in parts of Latin America, they are almost able to eradicate the disease. But obviously, in Yemen, given the crisis, not so much. So, yes, it is, so. as mm. a neglected tropical disease, it is really neglected in Yemen. So, have any countries actually managed to eradicate this completely? I think some in Latin America have, but I can't remember which ones and I didn't write it down. Listener, this is your homework. You can go and Google <laughs> I'm gonna guess that probably. I'm gonna guess that I think. Um, I'm gonna guess that Colombia probably has in Brazil. If they have it, probably haven't. Because um, I know that some countries in South in South America, South South and Central America at least, have been dealing with um, considerable uh, poverty burdens and civil wars, which I'm imagining is going to slow down your eradication efforts. Yeah, that's um, going to impact upon any kind of humanitarian actions that you take. Colombia's Colombia rather has a pretty good health record, so I'm guessing that they probably right. If, if anybody has, it probably is them. And I don't know if anybody in Africa has. Although I read somewhere that Nigeria, for example, is is reporting no spread, which means that some sort of eradication slash uh, mitigation methods are in place there. But that is something else to put a pin in, I imagine. <laughs> put a pin in for a follow up episode. Yes, we'll come back. We, we we do plan to do like a we had questions, now we have answers sort of thing. But in the future, when I when when I'm organized, basically, Laura is always organized. Laura was born organized, and I was born flailing. <laughs> oh God! So yet another thing for which we can thank the middle the, the Atlantic slave trade, hooray! As well as the East Coast slave trade, which doesn't get as much press, um, but has been equally important in its own way. Pretty wild, right? Slave trade. I was not expecting. I was not expecting that. I really thought it might be something to do with fruit, or coffee, or something. No. I was not expecting the slave trade. This has been this has been in South America for hundreds of years. Then. Yeah. So it. I mean, they've got all of the graphs about like when it, when it became most prevalent, etc. But I uh, ignored that because it had numbers in it. Oh yeah, fuck numbers. Um, and I'm, get that on I, am qu- I am qualitative, not quantitative. As am I. Numbers are not our friends, although we do occasionally have to um, indulge in them. Dear God. So, treatment. How, on, yeah. So I've got a story for you, but first I want you to tell me what is the normal way of treating this disease? Well, that seems to, to differ. There is no vaccine. For starters, mm. so you're always dealing with you're always dealing with um, prevention. Uh, we've heard this before. I think we should just introduce some sort of um, drinking game to do with prevention because when they say just avoid the vector, you know we've heard this with all the mosquito-borne stuff. Oh, just don't get bitten by a mosquito. Easier said than done. All right. So step one, obviously, of um, not going blind from river blindness is to avoid catching it in the first place. Which since there's no vaccine, avoid means that you got to dodge the flies. So you, what sometimes happens is they spray rivers and fly habitats with larvicides and insecticides, which obviously have their own drawbacks because 
dangerous chemicals and sprayed on things. But, you know, you have to, it's the devil you know, basically. You can cover yourself in repellent also, easier said than done. And you can wear appropriate clothing. I would like to know what the appropriate clothing is. Because nothing I saw was like, you should wear long sleeves, you should wear a loose garment, everything, appropriate clothing, like you're supposed to automatically know. I imagined that it would be a long sleeved, long legged garment that is not tight to the skin and yet has sealed cuffs. And I'm guessing that in Central Central Africa, that's going to be quite uncomfortable because it's humid and hot. Step two is you get rid of the adult worms or the larvae. Now, if you are an unlucky bugger and you catch this while you're on holiday, um, you will be given doxycycline by your GP, and, um, which is a tetracycline class antibiotic, which is used for everything from acne and chlamydia to typhus, which is tick-borne, and syphilis. Oh. Um, interesting little dog leg, interesting dog leg into syphilis. So when they treat for syphilis, um, which is sometimes treated with doxycycline in people who can't uh, metabolize or are allergic to penicillin, there's a thing that results when all the little syphilitic parasites die called the Jarish-Herxheimer reaction. Um, between half and three quarters of people being treated with antibiotics for syphilis do get this. And um, it can it kicks in sort of after beginning treatment and symptoms like fever, muscle pain, headache, rapid heartbeat, joint swelling. It's really uncomfortable and they actually recommend that you be in hospital uh, when you have it. And something similar happens when they treat with um, uh, diethylcarbamazine, as we discussed. And sometimes when they treat with some of the other treatment options, which I'm going to leave in ivermectin to you because I know that you know about ivermectin. So doxycycline kills the adult worms, but not the larvae. So the treatment period is longer. So you have to take doxycycline daily for between four, uh, between six and eight weeks, which obviously makes it really un- impractical for a long-term mass, large-scale interventions. Um, and doxycycline works by killing the Wolbachia bacterium, which is a symbiotic relationship with the worms themselves. Wolbachia is a little bugger. It infects insects and nematodes. It's a bacteria. And sometimes it helps and sometimes it hinders. For example, fruit flies and some mosquitoes, it helps them be resistant to viruses such as chikungunya, Zika, West Nile, etc., as well as some insecticides. So in some cases, Wolbachia helps. Um, and it does help the worms. In nematodes, such as these little buggers, um, the Onkosuka worms, it helps them process nutrients. So when you kill the Wolbachia, the worm also dies. They have a very symbiotic relationship. Um and dialphacobamazine, which is the other another option, um, also works, but as we've discussed, some really horrible side effects. So the one most commonly used is Invermectin, and I'm handing Ivermectin over to you, because I know that you have all the secrets. I have all of the qualitative secrets. Don't ask me how it works. I just know it works. <laughs> okay, well, I can tell you how, I can tell you what it does uh, if you want to, I can tell you what it is if you want to deal with the, uh, the story of Ivermectin, which is your, your little particular baby. Well, let me tell you the story of it. So something magical, yes. everyone, like sort of tuck, tuck in bed, something beautiful is going to happen now. World Bank President Robert McNamara visited West Africa and saw firsthand the devastation caused by river blindness. In some of the village that is, villages that he visited, up to half of the population were blind as a result of the disease. So we already know just how nasty this disease can be. Thank you, Kylie. But there was a further impact. Fertile river valleys in which the vector is found were being abandoned as people moved away. This had a profound impact on food security, abandoning the most fertile land in order to try and prevent contracting river blindness. And it's not like West Africa could afford more disasters. There's not a lot of a buffer zone. No, it really, really couldn't. 
And so Robert McNamara began lobbying NGOs, businesses, etc. to do something. So now we pick up the story somewhere very, very different. A golf course in Japan. Ta-da! That's my star moment. Streptomyces avermatillus is as a species of acetinomyces. What a word. Actinomycete. And it was found in the soil near a golf course bordering the ocean at Kawana near Ito City in the Shizuoka region. Shizuoka. This was one of many samples taken by the team at the Kitasato Institute. But it was this strain that held great promise. As it has, da da da, I learned a new word. I even had to Google it and pronounce it. Like make a Google lady say it for me. Anthelminitic. Hey, what does that mean? It means naughty worm. Or actually just like against the worm. Bad worm. Antiworm. <laughs> so it has this potent anti-worm activity with little or no toxicity, unlike the drugs that Kylie told us about earlier. So the drug that was produced from the strain, now a strong antiparasitic, was called ivermectin which very quickly became a common veterinary medicine used to treat, pause for breath, as this is a long list, mites, ticks, botfly, ectoparasites, larval heartworms, amongst other things. While this drug does nothing for uh, some things that I'm about to tell you, which I don't really understand a lot of, uh, it does nothing for flatworms, protozoa, bacteria, or fungi, it was used to treat 320 million cattle, 151 million sheep, 21 million horses, 5.7 million pigs. And those numbers are as of 2004. So probably a lot more by now. That's a lot of, that's a lot of different livestock. Yeah. This is, this is a wonder drug veterinary in veterinary terms. Seems to be. But now this is where we rejoin the story of river blindness. Researchers noticed that the worm involved in river blindness was very similar to a type of worm that affects horses. So human trials commenced in Senegal and a wonder drug was born. With a single annual treatment of 200 micrograms per kilogram of body weight, it is possible to control river blindness and not just control, to treat it. The drug itself is distributed as mectazan and has been donated to the WHO's river blindness programs for the last 30 years and will remain free and available Direct quote from the drug company for as long as it is needed. Woohoo! That's that's fantastic, considering that it's going to be needed for quite, as we've established, some time. Uh, simultaneously, research is being done on community-directed treatment, as the drug is incredibly simple to administer with almost no side effects. It was possible for communities to manage their own health. This has, perhaps unsurprisingly, been a very successful model. Coverage was greatest when affected communities were allowed to design and implement their own drug distribution programs. You don't have to refrigerate this drug, I assume, in that case. If it's if it's simple, generally that means that part of it is you do not have to refrigerate it. Because I know that with large-scale interventions like that, refrigeration, especially in Africa, where a lot of stuff um, doesn't work because of infrastructural uh, limitations, refrigeration is a bit of a, a stumbling stone. So I'm assuming that ivermectin doesn't need refrigeration, does it? In none of my reading did I come across any mention of a fridge, so I'm going to say a very confident, absolutely no fridge required. And so that is the story of Ivermectin, a public-private partnership that 
actually worked and continues to work. So ivermectin actually really the private public partnership does work and it should be large scale because then, you know, for it to, for an intervention program to be effective, you have to treat about 80% of the population. So you you do need a very, very straightforward drug. Um, ivermectin doesn't kill the, the worms. It just paralyzes them, which prevents them from reproducing. Um, and you cannot use it for anyone weighing less than 15 kilograms or anybody with liver or kidney issues. Uh, and sometimes this is a, a slight drawback. If somebody has lower lower, which is another uh, nematodal phleuritic infection, also spread by flies, incidentally, you cannot treat them with ivermectin because then they will get sicker because it has a paradoxical effect on people with lower lower. And the problem is in some areas, people with lower lower will also have river blindness. Fun times. But those areas are usually known and then the health health outreach in that area can sort of take appropriate action. And if you're thinking ivermectin is only used in faraway places, um, be aware that it's also used for lice and um, rosacea. Two things which still which affect everyone equally all over the globe because lice know no boundaries. And rosacea, uh, well, actually, they don't know that it helps rosacea, but anecdotally, it seems to kill the mites, which are implicated. So if, if you have anything parasitical, chances are you will run into ivermectin at some point. Okay, but this is not a happy ending. There's a sort of a spreading problem, which is not very well understood yet, and they're not entirely certain that it is related to the um, river blindness, uh, the worms involved in river blindness. It's called nodding syndrome, and they're not entirely certain about it, but circumstantial evidence is strong because 75% of kids tested that had nodding syndrome also had a serious onchocerco-volvulus infection. So just to say, like, the river blindness worms were present in three quarters of the kids affected. Um, and it's mostly found in southern Sudan, which is just hit by every wave of crap disease imaginable. I mean, if it's happened and it's bad, it's happened in South Sudan, as well as Tanzania and parts of Uganda. It used to be restric restricted to Tanzania, but it appears to be spreading. And it might be an autoimmune response to the worm infection. So not the same as um, onchocerciasis itself, but sort of an immune reaction, not, not an infection. Um, so... It affects kids between the ages of 5 and 15, so very, very crucial years of growth and development, um, and restricts uh, growth and um, intellectual development. So you end up with children who are sort of stunted both physically and um, damaged uh, neurologically as well because it causes seizures. So it's a nodding seizure, which is basically uncontrollable nodding, although it varies in severity. So some, some kids just nod and some kids fall over completely and lose control. And the freaky thing is, it tends to, these seizures tend to occur when the child is getting cold or eats. And as soon as the child warms up or stops eating, the seizures go away. And they don't happen if the child is fed something unfamiliar. For example, when they were testing this, they would give the children chocolate, which obviously has poverty-stricken children from the middle of fucking nowhere in part of Africa that God forgot. Um, they hadn't encountered chocolate. And they gave them chocolate, no seizure occurred. Huh. And they test with other foods, and it turned out that when they were fed foods from their usual diet, they'd get a seizure. When they were fed foods from outside their usual diet, um, they would not get a seizure. But when the food became part of the usual diet, they would then get the seizure. So they're not entirely certain what's going on. And obviously, because this is a neglected tropical disease in an area which is largely neglected, uh, you know, nobody's really any closer to finding out. And there's no treatment, although anti-epileptic medication does help. Um, and it's fatal and causes lifelong you know, disability. So it is a giant shit show waiting to happen and it's affecting children. So obviously research is ongoing, but 
obviously, like everything else right now, it's probably come to a dead halt. And Southern Sudan, last I heard, has got some sort of social political upheaval. I might be thinking of somewhere else, but I'm fairly certain that they've got a war going on or had a war going on or a famine or all three of these things. It makes me angry. Can Sudan just get a break? Apparently like, not. Can it? Jesus. Not yeah, in Jesus, it would seem. If there's not, like, river blindness, there's a nodding syndrome. It's not that it's some sort of hemorrhagic fever. It's not that it's an HIV epidemic. It's not that it's famine. I mean, really. Give it a good grief. Anyway, so sorry to end on that downbeat. There is a small hooray in that that progress is possible and, in fact, has happened in some areas. Yeah, no, look, this is all entirely possible. We just, you know, need to make a concerted effort to stop worrying about hypertension in the first world. Um, And start worrying uh, about these drugs. Yeah, I'm really tired of seeing Africa getting left behind because drug companies don't care. I mean, well done to the to the to Merck or MSD for, you know, donating supplying ivermectin. Yeah, yeah, but um, other drug other drug companies maybe also need to step up. Maybe Sackler Pharmaceuticals, after the whole you know OxyContin fuck up, would like to redirect some of their considerable resources to maybe some something good like um, I don't know humanitarian outreach in Africa. Just just throwing it out there, Sackler. <laughs> family Purdue just just saying come at me bro maybe you want to do a little bit of PR recovery that would be a good a good first step I think I agree let's let's end the show on that note on a call out for farmers we have reached companies. the point of the podcast where Kylie has become angry about it <laughs> <laughs> oh dear no it's good it speaks to um your earnest and and people loving soul I'm glad that you think my soul is people loving my soul is idiot hating. I have no soul. <laughs> so lovely listeners, that is us, us for today. Over and out. Bye. Bye. Wash your hands. And please wear a mask. COVID is not cancelled. It's just slightly scaled back. And we're heading for the second peak. So really, really wear a mask. And don't be one of those people that doesn't cover their noses. Cover your goddamn nose. Goodbye and good night. Goodbye.